Anyway, all right, so we're continuing our study here on developing our personal Bible study, learning how to study the Bible, how to dig into the Word of God, and how to, to, to understand it at a, at a deeper level than just the surface level. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's so much to be found in the Word of God. Uh, last uh, In our last lesson, we started doing some word studies, and in doing those uh, word studies, of course, we uh, began to find the value of going back to the original languages. And so uh, we're going to be doing that again this evening. The theme verse that we're using for this study is 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 15. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I would say that all of us here can apply that verse. I would say that every one of us here, if we have talked about the Word of God with someone who was lost or maybe someone uh, who was of another uh, belief, uh, another denomination, and we've talked about the Word of God, something has came up that you didn't have an answer for. Guaranteed. And maybe I'm the only one. Maybe y'all know more than me. But it doesn't take long for somebody to stump you and say, well, what about this? The reason they're so good at it is they just study how to stomp people, you know, and we're studying the truth of the Word of God, and we don't study all these many times foolish questions that they come up with. But the Bible teaches us that we need to study, to show ourselves approved, that we, we, the Bible says in another place, that we may be able to answer every man according to the hope that lies within us. And so for this reason, we are learning how to dig into the Word of God and understand the things of the Word of God. And much of the Word of God can be understood at surface value. Definitely you can learn enough at surface value to know how to be saved, how to live a clean and holy life, how to, how to tell others about Christ. But there are some things in the Word of God that takes a little more digging to clarify and this helps us understand how to do that. So we're going to go forward in a word of prayer and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for these people that want to gather together, Lord, for the purpose of learning your word, learning how to study your word, becoming students of the word of God. Father, I thank you for each of them. I thank you for their faithfulness. I pray, Lord, as we look at this word study this evening, Father, Lord, it'll help us to see the importance, the value, of Lord, of digging into your word and how it answers questions. And, Father, it explains the sometimes difficult passages of Scripture. And, Father, help us to see this and understand this. Father, I pray the Lord will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I will say that we can spend the rest of forever doing word studies on Wednesday nights, and that's not what we intend to do. Uh, in our last lesson, we looked at uh, the word love, and we looked at the, the Greek word words for love, and we showed some interesting things there. We looked at the Hebrew word for sin, and then we looked at some things there. Tonight, uh, we're going to look uh, at the words used to describe eternal punishment. The words that the Bible uses to describe eternal punishment. Whenever we pursue words back to their original language, it helps us to understand the message of the passage. As we talked about, we said that many times, uh, whenever we look at the English Bible, and, and please understand as we go through this study, I am in no way tearing down the Word of God, but rather strengthening the Word of God. 
But whenever we look many times at the English language, we are incapable. We don't have the right enough words to fully describe what was in the original language. Brother Robbie, after last week's lesson, Brother Robbie said to me, he said, it's like the English Bible is a black and white, whereas the Greek and Hebrew was in color. And so just a little more to see there, and I felt that was a good application, a good way to put it. And so uh, we're, we're looking at the importance of understanding the Bible grammatically. Now, we demonstrated in several lessons how that there are tools available to the common man uh, such as the Strong's Concordance, which you have right here on the bottom, uh, Bible dictionaries, Greek and Hebrew lexicons, uh, uh, that enable somebody with zero understanding of the Greek language or the Hebrew language uh, to be able to locate, research, and define the meaning of Scripture in the original language. Now, as I said, this doesn't take away from the value of this Bible at all, but it enables us to get a better understanding of a passage and also, it will help clear up confusion surrounding passages because of the weakness of the English language. And it helps us to convey the full strength of the original language. If you remember in our last lesson, we showed how that the word love was used every time in discourse between Peter and Jesus. And so in our understanding, Jesus is saying the same thing over and over. But when we look back to the original, we find that there were two different words, a godly love and phileo love, that were being used that added a whole new dimension of meaning to that passage. And so uh, whenever we look at this, we in no way undermine the English Bible. But instead, we see how comparing the English Bible with original languages confirms and strengthens the message of the Word of God. In this lesson, we're going to do a third word study. And it's my hope that in this word study, last word study, we showed how it confirms and strengthens the Word of God. It's my hope in this word study, we'll see how that going back to the original language can not only clear up and strengthen Scripture, but it can also clear up misinterpretations and misunderstandings that men have caused in confusing the Scripture. So the word we're going to be looking at in this study is the word hell. The word hell. The word used to describe eternal punishment. Now in our King James Bible, uh, this place of eternal punishment is identified in one of three ways. Uh, uh, mainly in one of three ways. The most common word, this will be on your worksheet, the most common word found to describe this place of eternal punishment is the word hell. That's the most common word used in Scripture to describe eternal punishment is the word hell. Also, in the Word of God, we find the description of the lake of fire being used to describe this place of eternal punishment. And the third description is that of the bottomless pit. Now, these are all accurate translations. They all express the meaning of the passage in a thorough and understandable manner. But an even deeper understanding can be gained if we trace these passages back to the original text and find the definition of the word used by God to describe this place of torment. Now, when we go back to the original language, we find that several Greek and Hebrew words are used in the original text to describe this place of eternal uh, punishment. And we'll look at each of them carefully tonight. Uh, not all of them that are used to describe, uh, describe it, but several of them. We'll look at them carefully and see if we can gain an understanding of the message of Scripture concerning this unseen world. The words that we'll be looking at this evening, fellas, don't switch the string yet. We'll switch the string in a minute. But the, the words we'll be looking at this evening are the Hebrew word sheol, the Greek word hadith, 
which is the Greek equivalent of the word Sheol. We'll see that in a moment. Uh, the Greek word Gehenna, the Greek word Tartarus, and the Greek word Abyss. And so these are the words that we'll be looking at. These are original words that describe the place of eternal punishment. So to begin our study, though, we're going to run just a little bit of a rabbit trail here just to get it started, all right? And so to get it started, we're going to look at the definition of the word hell in our Webster's 1828 dictionary. And I've mentioned this dictionary a few times as we've been doing this. And tonight I want to show you why I believe this dictionary is invaluable to a student of the King James Bible. Invaluable uh, resource. So I have there on your worksheet the definition from the Webster's 1828 English Dictionary. There are four different definitions given. I want to read these, and these, what is on your worksheet is direct quote from the dictionary. Uh, the first one, number one, is hell is defined as the place or state of punishment for the wicked after death. Then Mr. Webster references Matthew chapter number 10 and Luke chapter number 12 as places in the Bible where we can go and see uh, hell being used in that way. Mr. Webster then includes this phrase, uh, which I think is just tremendous. He must have had a little preach in it because he included this phrase that said, sin is hell begun as religion is heaven anticipated. The second definition that he gives is the place of the dead or of souls after death, the lower regions or the grave, called in Hebrew, Sheol, and by the Greek, Hades. And again, he references passages of Scripture, Psalm 16 and Jonah chapter number 2. The third definition that he gives is the pains of hell, temporal death, or agonies that dying persons feel or which bring them to the brink of the grave. And he references Psalm chapter number 18. The fourth definition that he gives is the gates of hell, uh, the power and policy of Satan and his instruments. And he references Matthew chapter number 16. Uh, where uh, uh, Jesus says that upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we see here that Mr. Webster, his entire definition is based on the Word of God and refers us back to the Word of God. And so when you're reading your English Bible and you're looking up what words mean in your 1828 dictionary, you have a Bible dictionary of sorts that is referring you back to passages of Scripture, giving you passages of Scripture where these words are used. Now, the reason this is important to note is because if we go on in this study, you will see that the word hell comes from several different Greek words. Mr. Webster understood that, and in these definitions that he gives, ties to the original Greek words, he gives us passages of Scripture that shows us the different uses of the word hell. And so, very interesting to look at. Now, the little rabbit trail that I'm going to run is... This dictionary right here, this wore out red dictionary, uh, is a 1985 Webster's Dictionary. So it's got a few years on it, but it's from 1985, not 1828, uh, 100 and some years later. And the definition for hell in that dictionary is a nether world in which the dead continue to exist. No Bible references, no Greek and Hebrew references, just another world where the dead continue to exist. Completely different definition than Mr. Webster gave in 1828. This top one here is American Heritage Dictionary from 1985. And it defines hell as the abode of the dead in ancient tradition. You see how the definition is completely lost? 
So you take a new Christian who wants to be a student of the Word of God and they find a word and they grab this dictionary and they look it up and they're getting a definition that does not apply to what is in Scripture. And so that is the reason why you say, Pastor John, you pick up dictionaries at your goodwill for 50 cent all day long. Why are you promoting this $50 dictionary? Because it's worth the $50. It really goes a long way in helping us to understand what was meant when this Bible was penned? So that's the end of the little rabbit trail there, telling you why a good dictionary is important if you want to be a student of the Word of God. So now let's consider the meaning of the original words in our study. The first word we want to consider is the Hebrew word shield. Shield. If we look at our Strong's Concordance, uh, we find the definition there to be the world of the dead, the grave. That is the definition that Strong's gives us for the Hebrew word sheol. This Hebrew word sheol is found 65 times in the Old Testament. It is translated as hell 31 times. It's translated as the grave 31 times. And it's translated as the pit three times. Per the definition and the use of the word in the Old Testament, we find the basic idea behind the word sheol is the grave. That is the basic understanding of this Greek word is the grave, although it is translated as hell 31 times, as the grave 31 times, the pit three times the basic understanding is the grave. Now, just hang on. Some of you might be getting worried. Before you write me off as teaching that hell is just the grave, hang on, all right? We're going to prove to you that that's exactly what I don't believe. But by understanding this, you will understand how that people do come up with that conclusion and how they conclude that hell is just a grave. It's not a place of fire. But when we look back at these original words, we can find out where that confusion came from, and we can use Scripture to explain that hell is a place of fire. The next word we want to consider is the Greek word, Hades. Hades. And these two words, Sheol and Hades, if you've been in church uh, any length of time, you've probably heard preachers refer to these words. Uh, the word Hades is actually the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Uh, so if you want to say Sheol uh, in Greek, you would say Hades. It's the Greek equivalent of Sheol. We know this to be true by the Word of God. So I want you to take some, take some time here. I'm trying to hurry, but I'm trying to slow down at the same time to get through all this. So take the Bible turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. I'll show you something here very interesting about your Bible. In Psalm 16, we'll be looking at verse number 10. I actually had a marker there and I didn't even realize that. That worked out good for me. <laughs> in Psalm 16, in verse number 10, David says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Something you'll find about the book of Psalms, and this is a completely different study and something we may look at later. The book of Psalms is full of prophecy. David was a prophet. I mean, Psalm is full of prophecy. And Psalm 16, verse number 10 is prophetic. And if we turn now to the book of Acts, hold your place there in Psalms, and turn to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. Uh, in Psalm 16, David said, thou, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither uh, 
Wilt thou suffer thine only one to see corruption? In Acts chapter number 2, and in verse number 27, we find here that Psalm 1610 is being quoted in the New Testament. This is Psalm 1610 being quoted in the New Testament. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. If you go down to verse number 31, it says, He, seeing this, the force spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So we see from verse number 31 that the verse in Psalm 16 was prophetic, speaking of Christ, uh, that his um, soul was not left in hell. Now, the point I want to make to you concerning that Hades and Sheol are interchangeable words is Psalms was written in Hebrew. And the word hell in Psalm 10 in Hebrew is Sheol. Now, the book of Acts was written in Greek. And when the Holy Ghost inspired the author of Acts to write this down, he wrote the Greek word Hades. So whenever we look at this, we see that the Bible confirms that the word Sheol, we find in the Old Testament, the word Hades, we find in the New Testament, is interchangeable. They mean the same thing. The Holy Ghost confirmed this when he wrote it down. So we see both uh, through language and the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that these are corresponding or interchangeable words. Now when we consult our strongest concordance, we find the definition for Hades is the unseen world, the place of departed souls, the grave. That is the strongest definition of Hades. The unseen world, the place of departed souls, the grave. Understanding the original definition of this word sheds a great deal of light as I said, on to some areas that men have confused the scripture. We're going to look into a little bit of that uh, this evening. Now, the word Hades occurs 11 times in the Greek New Testament, and in the English New Testament, it is translated hell in all but one of them, where it is translated great. And that is in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is thy sting, O great, where is thy victory? The word great there in the original Greek is Hades, that's the only place where it is translated great in the New Testament. So, all this being considered, and I know this is a lot to take in, but like I said, I feel like y'all looked for this, so hang in there with me. All this being considered, we ask the question, where is this Sheol or Hades, and what is it? Where is it and what is it? What, what is it that we're learning here from Scripture? Well, simply put, it's the abode of the dead or the unseen world. Now, in the Old Testament and before Calvary, when we read of the dead, whether unsaved or believers, if we read of the dead, they are always referred to as being in a downward location. Always. Whether, whether saved or lost, if it's before Calvary, they're always referred to as being in a downward location. When King Saul into the witch at Endor, he goes to the witch at Endor. He wants to speak with Samuel. Samuel is already deceased. He says to the witch, can you bring up Samuel? Now the witch was used to using her familiar spirit to create a, a hallucination uh, for her uh, customers. Uh, but the Lord worked a supernatural miracle and God brought Samuel back, which we, if you go back and read that passage, you find out that it terrified the witch because she didn't expect somebody to really show up. Uh, she was picking on pulling somebody. Uh, but Samuel said to Saul, why did you bring me up? In other words, he came up from below. He's referred to as a downward location. 
In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 9, uh, we find that at death, Jesus descended into the earth. In Luke chapter number 16, uh, go ahead and turn to Luke 16. In Luke 16, verse 19 to 31, we read the story of, of the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, turn over there. We're familiar with this story of the rich man and Lazarus. And this story sheds a great deal of light onto this place called Sheol or Hades. Here in Luke 16, verse uh, number 19, uh, we see the story here. Luke 16, 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, the dogs came to lick these swords. I'm yet to get Kel to name the dog Moreover. She just tells me I'm misinterpreting that passage of Scripture. But uh, moreover, the dog, you know, that's the only dog in the Bible that has a name. But uh, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifts up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Pride and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. He said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose. From the dead. This passage here teaches us a lot about this place called Hades in Scripture. We find from this story that in Jesus' days here on earth, while Jesus was here on earth before Calvary, uh, this Hades was divided into two sections by an impassable gulf. That's very clearly described here in Luke chapter number 16. Hades was divided into two sections. Abraham said, There's a great gulf fixed. I can't pass to you, you can't pass to me. we, we can't go to one another, but at the same time, they were located in such a location that they were able uh, to see one another, to communicate. Uh, when we look at this, we see that the soul of the rich man went to one side, and the rich man described it as a place of fiery torment. I am tormented in this flame. He described it as a place of fiery torment. The soul of Lazarus went to the other side. And Scripture describes it as being in Abraham's bosom, which many times Abraham's bosom is used as a Jewish idiom uh, that describes a place of rest, fellowship, comfort, happiness, love, and security. So here they are. Both have descended into the earth. The rich man is being tormented in flame. Lazarus is in a place of happiness, comfort, security. Everything Lazarus had Wish he had on earth, he has now found in Abraham's bosom. He is in a place of comfort. Also in studying this passage, we find that the rich man, although separate from his body, 
was very much alive and very aware of the torment of the place he found himself in. He, although he was separate from his body, he was conscious, he was aware of the torment, he was aware of the pain, he could feel it. So whenever folks try to tell you that there, that hell is just death or that there is, uh, it's a, a place of separation, that there's no literal fire, Luke 16 clarifies that there is literal fire in hell that people do feel when they are there. Very, very clear. So we see that the rich man uh, was able to feel the torment. But if we think back about where Lazarus is at over here, in Luke 23, 43, we find another reference to this place. In Luke 23, 43, go ahead and turn over there, we find another reference to this place where Lazarus is hanging out at. Here in Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me, in paradise. When Jesus said to the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he was referring to the same place we read of in Luke 16 when Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 8, we find that Jesus descended into the earth after his death. He said to the thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm going to paradise. In other words, uh, Jesus was referring to the happy segment of the unseen world. Now this is deep stuff. Y'all stay with me. We're going to swim back out of here if I don't run out of time. All right? We'll swim back out of here. Now, go go to Ephesians chapter number 4. Go to Ephesians chapter number 4. We'll just flip over there. Verse number 8. <clears throat> now this passage of Scripture is one that's been, uh, many folks have struggled with, but I think by doing this word study, it helps us to understand this passage of Scripture. Uh, this is quoting a portion of Psalm 68, 18, here in Ephesians chapter number 4. You know, that's just a little side note like turning there. Whenever you have a book that was written over the course of 1,500 years, and you find the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, it pretty much verifies the authenticity of this book, I believe. But in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 8, down to verse number 10, we find this passage of Scripture that many folks have struggled with. It says here in Ephesians 4, verse number 8, wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended, up far above all heavens that he might feel all things. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, we understand that Hades refers to the unseen abode of the dead. We discover that at his death, Jesus descended into the earth. But now many people will teach, and maybe there's some here that disagree with me. We can talk about it over a cup of coffee in a friendly nature at some time. There are some that teach that Jesus at death went to hell, the place of fire and torment. But when we understand the meaning of this word, we find that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus did descend into the earth. He did descend into Hades. But when he descended into the earth, he went to paradise. He went to where the sainted dead were waiting for Calvary. 
And when he died, he went into the earth to paradise. And the Bible says he led captivity captive. Those that were waiting on him, he got them and he translated them. He took them with him to glory. He went down into the earth and he took them to glory. Now a couple of things to back up the fact that I believe Jesus did not go into hell. Uh, one is this simple word study, I believe makes it clear that he went to paradise and not into the place of torment. But the Bible also tells us, if we remember the verse we looked at just a little while ago, there are Psalms that said that he would not see corruption. Hell is a place of corruption. The Bible promised that Jesus would not see corruption. Therefore, he could not go into hell. Also, uh, the Bible tells us that the flames of hell, and we may get a chance to look at this in a moment, that the flames of hell are reserved for the devil and his angels not the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever the Bible tells us that Jesus went into the earth or that Jesus descended into hell, it is not mean that he went into the flames of fire, but rather that he went into the paradise side of Hades. Now, if you question this, you're like, Pastor John, I'm just not sure about all this. I'll give you a little challenge. We don't have time to look at all of them tonight. I'll give you one example in just a moment. After Calvary, well, hang on, back up just a second. Before Calvary, the sainted dead are always referred to as being in a downward location. After Calvary, the sainted dead are always referred to as being in an upward location. Always. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 explains what happened. Jesus descended into the heart of the earth. He got those that were waiting on Calvary. He took them to glory to be with him. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 4, Paul says that he was called up into paradise. And we can look through many, many passages of Scripture that verify this, that the sainted dead after Calvary were always referred to as being up. And when Paul was speaking here of this vision that he had, he said that he was called up into heaven. And so we can look much more into that. But I believe that this helps us to see that Hades, or Sheol, refers to the unseen dead. Some passages, it refers to a place of torment, such as in the case of the rich man. Sometimes it refers to a waiting place for the sainted dead, such as in the case of Lazarus. Now, another word that we'll consider is the Greek word Gehenna. The Greek word Gehenna. This is also translated hell in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Greek word Gehenna appears 12 times uh, in the New Testament and is always translated hell. Always, every time, it is translated hell. In the book of Strong's, uh, or in Strong's Concordance, excuse me, not the book of Strong's, that sounds like Strong's is part of the Bible. <laughs> it might help out if you put one in the back of the Bible. Anyway, uh, in Strong's, Strong's Concordance, uh, the, the definition given is Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna, a valley of Jerusalem used figuratively as a name for the place of everlasting punishment. Now, the origin of this word Gehenna is interesting. We see a little bit of it here in Strong's, but digging into some lexicons and some deeper understanding, we find the origin of this word Gehenna. Now, at the time of the crafty in the Old Testament, and it's interesting to note, and this is another different study, but King Solomon is actually the one who brought this to Israel because of his pagan wives. A whole message could be preached right there. 
But Solomon didn't necessarily promote it, but later kings promoted this, and that was the idol Molech. Molech was a false god, and they erected a statue to the false god Molech in the valley of Hinnom. The statue of Molech was a large statue, and the inside of the statue or the idol was hollow, made of a metal or a brass. The inside of it was hollow, and they would build a fire in the hollow of this idol. The lap of the idol would turn red hot, blazing red hot. And parents would take their infant children and lay them on the lap of Molech, that red-hot lap. And in their thrashing and trying to get away from the heat, they would fall into the hollow of the idol and be consumed with the fire. They would offer their children as sacrifices to Molech in this manner. The idol was there in the valley of Hinnom. Now, in Jesus' day, the idol was long gone. This had been centuries before, and the idol was long gone. But the Valley of Hinnom had became a place where they got rid of all their refuse, all their waste, anything that needed, got rid of, kind of like our county landfill. They just, this is where they put everything they wanted to dispose of. And a fire was kept burning in the Valley of Hinnom 24-7. They just kept it burning round the clock, kept it going, kept it going, so that the refuse and the waste and everything that was thrown in the valley would be consumed to burn up and there would be room for more. And so it was natural, it was natural uh, for the name Gehenna, which means, as you see there in Strong's, a uh, 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 valley of Hinnom, it was natural that this word Gehenna uh, would be used to describe a place, figuratively used to describe a place of eternal torment, which is exactly what takes place in the New Testament. We see that this, uh, this place where filth and dead animals were cast out and burned was a fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction. So the word Gehenna in the Bible is always referred to as hell. It always refers to a place of eternal fire. It always refers to a place of torment. Always. Understanding this will help you whenever you come across the word hell in your New Testament to decipher. Is this talking about Hades? Or is this talking about Gehenna? And it will bring great clarity to what the Bible is talking about and will help keep us from forming incorrect doctrines such as confusion about paradise, Jesus descending into the earth, and so forth. Now, about out of time here, but there's a couple other Greek words we'll look at real quickly. If you want to look at an example of where the word Gehenna is used uh, in Mark chapter number 9, we've got time to flip over here real quick. Flip over to Mark chapter number 9, and we'll give you an example of the word Gehenna being used. Here in Mark chapter number 9, verse number 43, the familiar passage of Scripture, Jesus says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life mine than having two hands to go into hell, Gehenna, the fire that never shall be quenched. You see this repeated uh, in verse 44, where their worm dies not and their fire is not quenched. Verse 46. Where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 37, the eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. 
This is the word Gehenna being used, and it's very obvious that this is speaking of a place of literal fire, literal, eternal fire. Now, the other two Greek words that we were going to look at this evening, we'll just look at them briefly, uh, that refer to hell. Uh, maybe we'll come back to them later. Probably not, though, because we've got a lot to cover in this. We'll let you do a little studying on this. But one is the Greek word Tataris. Tataris. Um, this word is used in 2 Peter 2 and verse number 4. That's an interesting passage of Scripture. We'll flip over there and read that really quick. There's a whole lot of stuff we can get into in this passage. We're just going to look at the use of this word and not get into everything that this verse is talking about. I hope that by doing this, though, you're seeing that boy, there's a lot here. You can spend a lot of time digging into this book because we look at something like we're just going to look at this part of it because there's so much more here that could be covered. In 2 Peter 2 and verse number 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, as I said, there's a lot of explanation that can go into what exactly is being talked about here about the angels that are chained, and maybe someday we'll get into that study. But what we want to look at is the word hell here <clears throat> comes from the Greek word tataris, which means to incarcerate in eternal torment. Locked forever in eternal torment is what the word means there. The other Greek word uh, that we find that translated hell in our Bible is the word abyss. Abyss. It's actually spelled a little differently than the way I have it on the screen, but this is the most commonly accepted spelling, and so that's what I gave there. It's a lot easier to see it right now. Uh, it has a couple U's in it and a few things the way it's actually written in your Strong's. Um, the Strong's definition of the Greek word abyss is an infernal, bottomless pit. Now, I'm sure we've heard many people preach about the fact that hell is a bottomless pit. That comes from this Greek word, abyss. It means bottomless pit. We find this word, this word used in a couple of places that we'll look at this evening. Uh, Revelation chapter number 9, we find this Greek word, abyss. Revelation chapter number 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, and the smoke of the great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And you, continue, you can continue reading all the way to the end of the chapter, and it describes this bottomless pit, this hell, and what comes up out of it when the Lord releases uh, the tormentors out of it. But then we can go over to Revelation chapter number 20. I just want to go over here because I love this verse. I like to show this verse to the devil every chance I get. Revelation chapter number 20, verse 1 down to verse number 3. We see this angel with the key to the bottomless pit showing up again. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. I just love reminding the devil he's going to be bound and cast in hell, and nothing he can do about it. But uh, we see here this reference to the Greek word abyss. Now, 
much more that we could look at in word studies. And like I said, we could teach forever. Just picking different words from Scripture and doing word studies and seeing the meanings and seeing how they explain the Scriptures. But I hope just these three that we've looked at, we probably won't do any more uh, in this manner. We'll probably move on to other things to understand about Scripture. But I hope that it's encouraged you to get into the Word of God. Everything that we looked at can be found in the Strong's Concordance. Outside of the Valley of Hinnom, if you remember, I talked about getting you a good book that spoke about the manners and customs of Bible days. You get your strong recordings, a book about the manners and customs of Bible lands. You can discover all of that. Many times uh, we feel that this stuff is deep and mysterious and only the preacher can know it. But it's readily available to any child of God that wants to apply themselves to digging into the Word of God. And I hope that these Wednesday night studies are encouraging you. Creating an interest in you. It's like, hey, I want to dig in a little deeper. I want to find out what is there. I want to find the truths of the Word of God. So hopefully that's been a blessing to you this evening. Before we close in a season of prayer, I wonder if anyone has thought of a prayer request that they wanted to share before we pray. Anyone at all? Anyone at all think of something they wanted to share? Yes, sir. I was going to tell you, years ago before I got saved, Hey, Joe was with us coming by home in Baltimore. They was telling me to help with the grave, which is Hades. Right. And that's the thing that they pushed that back then. I don't know what they do now, but I'm, even in this little uh, young child, young man, you know, wouldn't say that. Uh, you, I knew better than that. You knew better. Yes, I did. But they can make it sound convincing. Oh, you told me there was a place to my bird. I'm lying. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. All right. Brother Harry, would you mind opening this up in prayer? And Brother Terry, you can close us in 